You know, the rapid pace of technological advancements are making this more ubiquitous. These skills are seeping into nursing and mechanics and to any any job skill you're interested in across the entire spectrum. But it's more than just that. It's not just about creating little worker bees. It's creating citizens who can be engaged in their world. And that is increasingly requires technical skills and an understanding of computation. This is no such thing podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. A quick note before we get started, my many, many thanks to those who have been downloading the show, offering your uh, positive feedback, your high fives. Uh, It is so deeply appreciated. I have a favor to ask you. If you like what you hear on the show, you believe it, what it is that I'm up to, please head back to the platform where you downloaded uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, um, rate, review the show. It makes a huge difference to help us get the word out, get more people listening, um, and also bring support to the show. I thank you very, very much. On with today's episode. If you ask anybody who knows anything in the world of computer science education uh, right now, there's a short list of people who they say, you should be talking to fill in the blank. Uh, One of the names that constantly crops up happens to be this guy. I'm Michael Preston. I'm the executive director of CSNYC. We work uh, in partnership with the New York City government and school system to bring computer science to all kids in grades K-12 here in the city. And I'm also the co-founder of the National CS for All Consortium, which seeks to expand computer science across the country in partnership with every organization that might want to be part of this uh, growing movement. Then if you ask that guy... Who should we have on the show to have a conversation about where CS education is right now? And what kind of transformation do we hope that this movement will bring in the future? He puts this woman on the short list. My name is Dr. Stephanie Rodriguez. I'm the STEM Policy Director at the After School Alliance. We're a national nonprofit based out of Washington, D.C. that works to ensure after school programs across the nation have access to federal funding to bring after school programs to all of their students, making sure kids have a safe space to be when they're not in the school day. So away we go. This is the first of several conversations we have planned for the topic of computer science ed. CS Ed is everywhere in the conversation right now, and we want to dig in to what's most important. I think this is a great jumping off point. Enjoy it. Um, Stephanie and Michael, thank you for joining for this conversation. I'm excited to kick off um, a series of episodes on computer science education because there's a lot happening. Uh, there's a, certainly a national dialogue Um around computer science and education. And I, I kind of want to, for those who haven't had that initiation, start there. Uh, Michael, in your introduction, you you mentioned it as kind of a movement. Um, what is the movement? I think what happened in the last five years or so is that we had this convergence across a lot of different sectors um, all at the same time converging on this idea that it's time to bring computer science in a meaningful way um, to all kids and all citizens because of a couple different things. One is that the um, 
the need for the workforce to have the skills required of making software that can drive everything. We're, we live in a world that's that's defined and, and run by technology, and um, though the workforce doesn't have the skills that we need to be competitive and to fill the open jobs. And that's certainly the what you hear from the tech industry and, and from a lot of governments that are interested in this work. But th at the same time, we also have an equity focus where we are looking at the kids in our schools who haven't really been adequately exposed to technology for learning. Um, technology has made an appearance in schools uh, in kind of isolated ways or for improving instruction through kind of you know efficiency and access to information but not actually in a creative and purposeful way that we would like to see and as a result we have we don't really we do we do a disservice to kids by not giving them access to to think to knowing how to make things and to to understand the the technology driven world we live in and so by making that a rarefied thing that only some kids get access to. We're, we're both failing to develop the, the citizenry and workforce we want, but we're also like leaving the potential of so many kids off the table because they just haven't had that exposure. And so uh, the combined forces of, of like economic drivers and equity drivers, I think, kind of came together in a unique way. And, and now we actually have this opportunity to um, design and build and um, develop the kind of, of learning pathways we want. I think what's really exciting about the movement, if you will, um, is sort of how it drove folks who are creating curriculum and designing the way kids engage with computer science to diversify the way they're offering opportunities to engage. So you have a workforce imperative that says we need to train more students so that they can fill these jobs um, in computing or in technology fields. But then when you look at the equity component, you have to start thinking about why are certain populations of our students unrepresented in these fields as they are in these degree spaces in undergraduate or in the few places where they're offered in high school. And so what you see is a lot of creative and ingenuitive approaches to bringing more equity to the way we teach computer science and technology and ensuring that kids are you know, not just consuming technology but have the opportunity to create technology. And so that goes beyond just rote memorization and coding classes for the sake of coding and it bridges into citizen science and you know using these technologies to to impact social change which is what we know a lot of groups of kids are interested in doing so i appreciate the movement over the last five years and sort of how it's uh, taken that approach into engaging more students yeah, yeah. i love that description of the movement in part because it favor it seems like it favors to me what I know of some of your background Stephanie is that is and I hope you will tell us a little bit more about it but you are um, you mentioned yourself as dr. Stephanie Rodriguez and um, that your PhD is in epidemiology immunology immunology yeah. related I, I was close <laughs> um, but tell us, tell us why, from your perspective, that version of the movement benefits young people like um, it, to the advantage that you had. Yeah. I mean, I can say personally that I would have been considered one of those stereotypes that you would talk about who are sort of afraid of computer science because of the stereotypes that I associated with who does or who's good at computer science. Um, so it was never it was never a field that I was interested in, but I was, of course, going to be a scientist. Um, and 
So I did everything in my power to avoid taking computer science classes, even though I was taking upper level microbiology courses and working in a lab and doing, you know, R01 level research, but still intimidated by computer science. And as I went through my PhD, it became increasingly clear that if I just had a little bit of that knowledge, it would have benefited my own immunological studies mm. tremendously. Um, so I found myself... Um, which is not a bad thing, but I found myself having to find collaborators and folks who had those computational skills and figuring out a way, but maybe didn't have the biological background, and so figuring out a way to combine those skill sets. Um, so just from a personal level, I see how my own um, buying into stereotypes around who does computing and what computer science is intimidating me out of gaining those skill sets, even though I wasn't intimidated in other settings, right? Mm. Um, and so that, I think, is why I really appreciate uh, watching sort of the beauty and joy of computing or exploring computer science, these curricula that are designed to engage students like me who maybe would say, CS isn't for me. Um, I don't fit that that mold. Mm -hmm. um, but figuring out a way to to let you dip your toe in and realize that it is for you. Mm. Um, but, and, yeah. and what specifically were the environments for you? Because um, you had some pretty cool uh, sort of extracurricular and community based, I think, uh, opportunities to engage. Yeah. So I mean. When I was growing up in high school or as an undergrad, um, I participated in a lot of research experiences that were designed to broaden participation in STEM fields. So things that were getting um, you know, black girls like me into research labs. But I was never exposed to anything like that with computer science. It was much more, more of those opportunities were in chemistry and biology and other sorts of wet lab kind of experiences. Um, and there was this assumption I had, I think, that it was, you know, sitting on a computer by yourself, isolated in a room, um, mm -hmm. and that wasn't really the experience I was looking for. I wanted to be engaged in some sort of science that I thought was going to impact people, and I could see those connections more directly. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you know, fast forward seven, ten years, and after, you know, four years working in computer science education, you realize that there are so many ways to impact society through computer science. There are so many ways to intersect computational thinking with biology or whatever that field of interest is, and computer science is really a tool to be used to amplify your ability to pursue all sorts of questions. Um, but that wasn't something that I had ever been told. That wasn't something I'd ever had personal experience observing. I didn't know any computer science. Mm. Um, so, you know, you really don't know what you don't know, and you base it off your the experiences you have. Um, and so, despite having a lot of really unique opportunities to be engaged in authentic STEM experiences, those STEM experiences did not include computer science mm. um, when I was when I was engaged in them. And so now they are increasingly. In integrating computational thinking and computer science uh, tools and skills into all of these opportunities. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of, of students entering their undergraduate careers thinking about their research skills or thinking about they want to go into business, but they know that computer science is going to really be helpful for them and thinking about their business pursuits. Um, I think you're just going to see a lot more students who understand how computer science is a tool to achieve beyond just writing a code for a program. Mm. Do you guys think that it's computer science education is more important now than it was 20 years ago? I think that I'll take my I'll take the first stab at this. I think that 
computer science is more relevant now because of the um, ubiquitousness of technology in our lives, that devices are much more powerful and they're smaller and they're cheap and they're everywhere. And so your interactions with technology are unavoidable. And so you, at the on the one hand, you need to know how that all that stuff was designed and built for you and your role in it and how to manage it and change it and maybe think about how you might even take the reins and, and use it for your own just to, you know what you might need to do the same way Stephanie was just illustrating how different fields might employ computing um, as a foundational skill it was always kind of present um, you know we talk about the legacy of Seymour Papert through um, his seminal work and what uh, all of his graduate students have gone on to do to create uh, opportunities for creative computation and um, bringing in a much more um, developmentally appropriate way of thinking about learning as the driver of how computing can be purposeful. Um, so I think there, while there's been this drumbeat around jobs and and technology is a skill set for for economic reasons, the learning reasons are still there, um, have always been there. There's probably more tools and opportunities to learn it, and so that's what's changed, and the and the, the public consciousness has changed. Um, so what we're actually aiming for is is not that different. And when I when I go to a tech company, and I I always like to take a poll of these software engineers, you know, where they learned computing for the first time, and it's rarely a school thing. I mean, that will change, um, but often. You know, there'll be so many who had a computing experience in college, there'll be so many that had it in K-12, but those folks are always fewer than half of the folks in the room. The rest figured it out uh, wherever they were. Um, and so I can see why you might have an imposter syndrome f when you are faced with computer science as a field or a discipline and what you might imagine to be a computer scientist because you haven't met them or you have this uh, idea of what it means to be a computer scientist, whereas as a foundational skill set, and if it's something that's ever present for all kids, then it's it's much less of a an object to be kind of looked at from afar, but something that you can really embrace for your own purposes. So I think getting more kids acquainted so that like when Stephanie comes into biology, which was her passion, that she would have that toolkit already at her disposal. And I don't I wouldn't say more important or the way you phrased it, but I think there's increased urgency right now with ensuring that all of our students are getting access to this um, because, as Michael just described, you know, the rapid pace of technological advancements are making this more ubiquitous. These skills are seeping into nursing and mechanics and to any, any job skill you're interested in across the entire spectrum, but it's more than just that. It's not just about creating little worker bees. It's creating citizens who can be engaged in their world, and that is increasingly requires technical skills and an understanding of computation. And so when we are talking about CS for all, I think we often sort of get down into the debates about um, a zero-sum game in education and what what do you not teach if you're teaching computer science? And, and these are fair debates to be having for sure, but we can't not be addressing the need for computational skills in computer science education because then we're just going to be allowing those skill divides and those gaps to get wider and wider and wider between the kids who have the chances to learn these skills, whether it's in or out of school, whether it's at their home or at an after school program, and the kids that don't. And so the urgency, I think, of our society being increasing, increasingly 
you know, fueled by technology means that we need to ensure that kids are having exposure to this as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Th- this week, we've heard a lot about Meltdown and Spectre being these, you know, chip vulnerabilities that all of our digital devices are now, you know, subject to hacking and other other terrible things. And I, I read an article showing about how, how over, year after year developments in the hardware meant that speed was given priority over security. And so now we're at a place where we're many years into the development of chips based on those priorities. And I feel like the field is in a similar state of acceleration where we've built the tech industry and the field around the ideas of a small number of people um, and the lack of gender and ethnic and socioeconomic diversity participating in that conversation means that we're increasingly making technologies and businesses that don't have the perspectives of a lot of people. And it's like the many layers of development on those chips. Ultimately, you're going to end up with something that is so deeply flawed that there's no way to actually just patch it, that that ultimately the, the fundamentals on which we've built a system around these advances means that we have really kind of left out the perspective of more than half of the populace. And many of the things that we've decided the design decisions that were made for re- reasons of expediency or because there was only one voice in the room means that there's uh, lots of issues that we don't that we can't just easily undo. Do you think there's a reason that the workforce issue, right? If when we frame the urgency, as you put it, of CSAD, Workforce, in air quotes, always comes before diversity. And when you look, it it seems to me that when you look at the data, the challenge for us as a country is way more the reverse, that we will much more likely fill those jobs, full stop, than we will fill them with um, a reflection of who we are as a country. So... Why are we talking about the movement and leading with workforce still? I try not to lead with workforce. I think it, 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 there's a natural state of talking about jobs because it's in the press. Um, the tech industry makes a lot of noise about it because they want to be able to hire people or they at least want to be... Uh, appropriately contrite when their diversity numbers are terrible um, and or that they need to offshore jobs or import them with H-1B visa programs, all of which are, you know, readily, or at least until recently, were readily available tools for the the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's fair that they have an economic interest and there are some of the louder voices at the table. But I think the movement, the CS for All movement is much more significantly driven by educators who are more aware of uh, diverse learners and kids of all backgrounds and figuring out how to make CS for All a reasonable education operation um, in all different kinds of contexts. So perhaps it would be interesting to know across, um, I mean, I may be speaking from my own education bubble, but whether, whether the rest of the populace sees CS for All, a movement as being driven by the, the giant tech companies of the world versus the sort of grassroots side that I think of when I think of like the CS for All Summit um, last October, where we had, you know, commitments from hundreds of organizations and people from all over the country, many of whom are 
very much um, youth development, academic, creative, nonprofit, universities, you know, folks that are, are have been here and will a long time be here in the education movement. It also seems like leading with that is um, a, a result of where the money to support these things come from. So um, with few federal dollars that are available for computer science education specifically, you have all of these communities, after school programs, in school, whatever, that are rallying and vying for money from philanthropic um, entities, largely that come from tech sectors mm. who, are, who are pumping in billions of dollars, right, to support computer science programs in and outside of school. So you message, right, for where, <laughs> where that support is coming from. Mm. And that goes beyond just computer science. So we're talking about career-connected learning across any discipline. Um, there is a focus on ensuring kids get jobs. Um, and and that, is, that is the the dialogue that's happening around here. Um, but I think we would do well to start thinking about the dignity that we build in students and in communities when you give them access to these types of learning opportunities and you give them power that is associated with being the creators of their own technology. Mm -hmm. But those don't tend to be the, the, the talking points that necessarily get people to, to cut you a check for your program. Yeah. Um, so I think when we think about this entire ecosystem that involves the people who are deciding where money goes and how money is spent, and it includes the groups that are vying for that money. And so as funders, if we really do want to invest in learning opportunities for the sake of our students, for growing a, a dignified and capable society um, in our country, then we have to start acknowledging the power of programs that are looking to um, address the intersectional needs of their students um, and are trying to address not just building gritty students who are brave, but addressing the places where they work that are toxic. Mm. So um, I think we can start reframing this conversation in a way that shows where our priorities lie. But that's that's something I, I hope happens. Yeah, me too. There, there's a lot you just said, and I want to <laughs> come back to a bunch of it because I love the way you put... Uh, what you did. It feels to me like the two narratives are in conflict in the sense that on the one hand, if we have to market the movement, I'm saying we, including myself as, as uh, somebody who uh, helps to lead the efforts of an organization that's very much a part of this conversation nationally. Um, if we lead with marketing that is about workforce. Um, but then when you read a little further down, it's clear that, that what we're actually after is an interdisciplinary approach where computer science is a part of all of the careers that our young people might be envisioning for themselves even five years out. Um, it's at odds with the workforce narrative because the workforce narrative fits the turn of the 20th century where we're, we're prepping for jobs that young people would, would know, you know, the, the sort of factory worker um, box that, that they might fit into. And so um, 
I, I don't think most of the organizations that I know, I don't think believe in uh, what they're doing as preparing young people for that kind of job. I think they, they think they're preparing them the way you put it, um, to uh, be empowered to sort of build and change the world around them, to speak truth to power, to um, have, have a different kind of voice um, in the design of uh, everyday things. And so, uh, so I just I wonder why. Uh, I mean, uh, that's a little bit uh, disingenuous. I know why uh, we talk a lot about workforce, but one of the reasons I love uh, this conversation is is what I know of the two of you is that uh, you are very much leading parts of this conversation that help us push that dialogue to a place where uh, we are foregrounding uh, equity and diversity in a way that uh, we haven't been for a long time. Um, you mentioned earlier that the ubiquity of technology and, and its role in why things are more urgent and relevant. Can you guys talk a little bit from your the experience of your organizations, um, what's the difference of urgency between the suburban school that you walk into and is super high tech where kids are going home and have high tech experiences and the school in the South Bronx where um, they still really don't have the bandwidth that the that well-resourced schools do they don't have the the hardware and and other tech that well-resourced schools do so is it a harder sell um, the the relevance is it different in our underserved schools than it is in uh, the well-resourced schools that that sort of see it right in front of them so I mean there's some survey data right we know um, from some Google surveys and other groups um, research that the after school Alliance has done um, parents want their kids to have access to computer science and mm. that spans socioeconomic racial ethnic gender lines it's, you know parents are hearing this workforce conversation they see their kids glued to their machines or playing with all of their technology toys um, and they they acknowledge that they want their kids to be a part of this technology innovation wave um, I think if you start asking more nuanced questions about what specifically they want their kids to be engaged with, that's when you'll start to see more differences. And that is really around knowledge and what families, how families understand computer science and what they understand it to be and mm. what they see those fields as including. Um, but I mean, by and large, if you're talking about STEM as a catch-all, or if you ask you want your kid to have access to computer science, 97% of parents say yes. There are fewer principals that say yes, so parents want it more than principals want it. Mm. And, you know, so you can look into all of that, but the, there's an appetite from families to have this access. Yeah. That's, that's universal. Universal, yes. That's an important um, point. And I think a, a community that you didn't mention, though, is the rural communities. So, mm. you know, I think we like to act like the digital divide doesn't exist anymore, but there are serious connectivity barriers in a lot of places in America. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough to just have a one-to-one -one iPad school when the connectivity is, is very poor or students can't get on their devices when they're at home oh, and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, I, and I think the other, another angle that's interesting to me is that um, sometimes it's not geography that defines um, 
the school's um, ability orientation toward offering computer science. Sometimes, you know, in the suburbs, you have a kind of a sleepy approach to education where there's not a lot of uh, motion in the curriculum, and and some of these well-resourced districts don't even offer computer science. Whereas in the Bronx, in which might be even in like uh, a very poor congressional district like the South Bronx, you'll actually see tons of amazing schools mm. that have really robust and creative uh, programs that involve computing. Um, and so it's, to some degree, it's a priority setting, but it's also a curriculum and human capital problem. And the reason we invest so much money in the computer science for all movement in adult learning is because there just aren't enough people with the skills to teach this stuff to kids. And so in New York City, uh, the 10-year CS for All initiative here is investing in basically retraining nearly 5,000 currently employed or one day currently employed New York City teachers to teach computing meaningfully in the context of what they're already teaching, so another subject area, or to become uh, more disciplinary specific computer science teachers. Um, and that is the, the, the race right now is to, is to catch up by offering computer science in more places through uh, adult learning to, to become teachers in classrooms and they have to learn project-based learning, which might be foreign to them already and then on top of that um, another layer uh, which is the content of computing um, in various uh, forms so right now that that is our our space race of, of computer science and it's not um, it's not hardware and connectivity as much as you would think I mean while those remain inequitably distributed in, in places all over the country rural urban and otherwise um, that's easier to fix to me than the actual human capital gap um, and the probably the curricular access, um, high quality computer science curriculum just isn't out out there as much as we would like to be, even though it exists. So getting people aware of that stuff and giving them access to it. What is it in, in those schools that are doing it really well? What does computer science education look like? That is the the million dollar question. I let that. That's a question that I, I would love to in for one of your future uh, instances yeah, to get too. a few of those people together, and then to argue about what that that is because I think there are a lot of different ways to approach that. But I'll give you maybe a typical one. So if you think about a K twelve pathway, you're seeing frequent and um, integrative experiences in the early grades where kids are getting uh, exposure to computational thinking that may or may not involve technology, that may involve, you know, thinking about uh, computational ideas um, like loops and if statements and getting kind of algorithmically oriented and doing it in ways that generalist elementary teachers are comfortable with. Uh, in the middle grades, you're introducing more formal CS ed with uh, ideally with, with some gear. I think hardware speaks a lot to kids. It's very concrete and making things do, making your, the robots or the Arduinos do things um, is really appealing. Um, and then in high school, you see even more formalized CS um, around uh, learning different programming languages and um, making uh, artifacts that are, are uh, congruent with what they know, websites and apps and that kind of stuff, and maybe taking an AP computer science class or even you know dabbling in things that might be even college level, so um, beyond AP. So there's, there's a, a whole expanse of things that kids can be doing in formal K-12. Um, so 
uh, but but that varies a lot. And I think what the next this next wave of computer science ed is involving states deciding to create standards, state-based standards for computer science, leveraging work already done by uh, the K-12 framework and CSTA standards, which are national level um, things to look at that can help guide states, and then determining what makes sense given the people, uh, the kids that they're serving and the, the workforce, the teaching mm. workforce in given states. Yeah, um, at the After School Alliance, you know, we are really encouraging states to, as they're developing their state plans and their standards, to ensure that they're they're paying homage to the, the fact that students spend 80% of their waking hours outside of the formal classroom. So you are if you want to meet students where they are, that means thinking about where they are before, after, and during the summer, before and after school and during the summer. So mm -hmm. we're really encouraging states to make sure that they're working with their 21st century learning centers and their youth development networks that are really active in their districts and in their communities to make sure that they're reaching kids in all of those spaces where they're learning. Um, we know that kids are getting computer science experiences and out of school time, whether the adults and those of us thinking about the strategies around it are being intentional or not. Mm -hmm. And so right now is really an opportunity to ensure that all of those clubs and after school programs and summer STEM camps are being intentional around making sure they're offering computer science in a way that's focused on equity and access and is preparing students to be involved in their formal computer science opportunities as well. Mm. And I might add also another challenge for all of us is to make sure that we're not constantly introducing kids to the same basic stuff every time. There are only so many times right. you can teach kids like the if statement, right? right. You want I did the PB&J like, exactly. protocol. Don't make me do that again. <laughs> but, but to be able to leverage that, you know, and this is I think where your relevance as an ecosystem building organization come in is that there can be a sense of where taking in these kids where have they been what do they know now how do i take them to the next level what is that next level that's that's kind of the next the next level conversation we all need to have in this space yeah can you before i ask about you said the word ecosystem and i want to follow up on that um but before i do can you describe in a more detailed way the pb and j um i think that's a great uh introduction for folks who don't know what this might yeah. look like at at a certain level um just Tell us how that looks. Yeah, so this is a really fun, unplugged, quote-unquote, activity, so it doesn't require any technical hardware. Um, and basically, you have the ingredients for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you ask whomever is participating in the activity to write out a program that would instruct a computer how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so my favorite way that I've participated in this activity is you split people up in groups, you all write your own algorithm for PB&J, and then you move around to each other's tables, and you try to follow the algorithm step by step, and you don't add any steps that are not written down. Mm -hmm. Um, you only do things as many times as you're told. If there's no loop, you don't do it again. Um, that sort of thing. And so it's a great way, C can get messy, but you know, you realize just how you teach a, a computer only knows what you tell it, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't think outside of the box. Right. Um, and so it really helps you start addressing um, algorithmic thinking, but without needing a computer in a way that is something that most people have had experience with. 
and hilarity ensues, right? Exactly. You end up, like, if you tell, if there's somebody standing at the front of the room trying to make a peanut butter or jelly sandwich, you might end up with a giant mess. Right. In or if they the never classroom. said open the jar, then right. you're not going to get anywhere. Then there's no mm-hmm. peanut butter for right. you. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you can have your groups, like, debug each other's algorithms mm. with a different color pen. It's great. So then the next group can come by and try it out. Yeah. And there are, um, yeah, so you you mentioned that as uh, sort of a, a quote-unquote unplugged um, and there are uh, a lot of folks, Mouse being one, that are working on ways of engaging young people in some of those concepts. And and um, I think it's a great illustration for people who don't know what computer science education can look like at an early stage. Um, it, it's a good characterization of some of the stuff that uh, is quality and out there. Um, but you said the word ecosystem, and I'm curious to talk a little bit, especially with um, you here, Stephanie, as uh, um, uh, somebody who's advising on policy for a national organization um, that's extremely influential, especially in the out-of-school time space. But I would say beyond that, K-12 generally, um, And I think sometimes about whether CS education is a moment where we have an opportunity in the wake of CS out out in the front um, to do more policy work to think about reforms that we've really been working on for, in some cases, 100 years, right? So we were talking about great CS education looking like project-based learning, it looking like more of an ecosystem, uh, it reaching kids from all kinds of uh, backgrounds uh, and in all kinds of communities and environments. Um, so so from After School Alliance's perspective, um, what are the key policy issues that help make CS education um, relevant for all and really sort of embrace that for all piece of the movement. Um, What do we need to be thinking about uh, and and maybe using Michael's ecosystem as a word and jumping off point from a policy perspective? What are the things that we can be think we can be using CSED as an opportunity to think more deeply about from a from with that policy lens? So I think that there are like if we're talking about education policy specifically and the new education law, the Every Student Succeeds Act, um, opens up some real opportunities to get creative. Mm. Um, it asks school districts and state education agencies to work with community-based organizations and to reach out to the community for guidance and instruction as they develop a lot of their programs and curriculum and out-of-school time programs, et cetera. So, you know, policies can only go so far. The language of a law can allow you the ability to do a lot of things, but it comes down to implementation ultimately. And so, you know, as we see states revising their education plans in reference to the new education law, some states are taking more risks or um, taking more advantage of the allowable uses now that to include youth development networks or connect with their STEM learning ecosystems or do more creative things. Um, Other states are just kind of trucking along and and sticking to what they know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
you know, there are, there are ways we can take advantage of policy where they allow a more cross-sector group of stakeholders to inform the way um, a school system is set up or the way they decide what students are engaged with. But it also takes sort of the folks on the ground to implement and take advantage of those authorities. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of um, leniency to include computer science and some of these other other titles that aren't so specific. Um, but it it will take a state agency to say, let's do that. Mm. Um, and I would say only a few are taking advantage of that when it comes to computer science specifically. Yeah. What are the states that we should, can we call some states out here? What are the states that we should look out for as being uh, productive from a reform specific to computer science. Yeah. yeah. So you have um, a state like Arkansas that is requiring that all high schools offer computer science. Um, you have a state like Illinois, but specifically um, in Chicago, where they're making computer science a graduation requirement. Um, and then you have other states um, like New Mexico, for example, who, while not focused on computer science necessarily, are being really creative with making STEM more broadly a priority in mm. a lot of their competitive programs. Um, and so I think as states start prioritizing and saying by name um, things that they care about, whether it's computer science or, or STEM more broadly, um, we'll start to see uh, programs and education um, trajectories reflect that. But it does require sort of putting it to language, putting words to mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Can, I, can I interject for yes, one please. second? Yeah, uh, yeah. Stephanie, earlier you mentioned uh, rural um, and connectivity and you know, access. and. Um, uh, Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania is heading in a direction of, of computer science for all as well. And they, in an attempt to make sure that they are mindful of, of those issues in, the, in, the, in rural counties and regions, um, uh, their their language, I think, is heading more toward being inclusive of different kinds of learning opportunities that may bridge in and out of school time as well. And I think that they, that's a really smart way, and it's a way I wish actually many more states would do it, too, because while you aim for school districts because those tend to be, you know, publicly funded and serve all the kids. There is a where where learning occurs, and especially especially where computing, uh, computer science learning, and other related kinds of things happen might not be in school, or that 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 there's more happening that's creative and open ended. Uh, that's maybe more productive learning uh, that can happen there. And so it's interesting to see now how many states are going to start. Uh, building those kinds of, of connections into what they uh, mm. announce. Yeah, absolutely. And, and taking advantage of that some of these dollars can be used to foster, right, these relationships with community-based organizations. Um, you also, so, I mean, you just don't want to push them out. Like, they're, right. the, they're the people who have the knowledge and the workforce, right? You have lots of nonprofits. I mean, New York City is, is sort of an embarrassment of riches. And when it comes to a STEM ecosystem, we have, you know, a massive number of, of organizations that create those opportunities for the, frankly, massive number of kids we have in the city, but the geographical density makes it much easier. So to see states with a, a, a with a density problem um, address that means that they're thinking like who's in the room and who can we bring bring in and keep included in this. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Stephanie, just as follow-up is in even those most progressive states, is the language including a is it inclusive of informal learning and after school? Or is the language typically 
concentrated on the school day? By and large, language is concentrated on the school day. Um, but you do get you know, certain state-level bills, for example, in Maryland, they just passed a robotics bill that um, provides funding to in-school robotics, but also out-of-school time clubs and summer programs that mm -hmm. focus on robotics. Um, so I think, you know, you will have some state plans that refer to their statewide after-school network by name as a resource in, and thought partner in developing, um, you know, the suite of opportunities for their students. but. By and large, we're still having these conversations, it seems, very um, siloed um, with, a, with a focus on formal learning um, as a means to reach the most students. But we know that there's over 10 million kids involved in after-school programs, 10.2 by our last um, five-year survey. And you know, for every kid that's in an after-school program, there are two waiting to get in who would be in one if, if there were one available. Yeah. That goes one to three in rural communities. So um, the idea of leveraging after-school and youth development programs, networks, and summer learning as a way to engage kids that might not be getting it during the school day is a tremendous strength. Um, and if you think about the four main youth development service organizations, 4-H, Girl Scouts, Boys and Girls Club, YMCA, mm -hmm. um, they're in every zip code. They're in every county. They're on every military base. They're in the places where we talk about it being tough population density-wise to reach those students. There's a Girl Scout club there. Or mm -hmm. you know, so um, thinking about the way to leverage the you know, 300 years of experience those, those youth development networks have in reaching students um, would be a, is a big opportunity to bring CS for All through those already established networks. Um, and each of those organizations are doing amazing things um, trying to do that, but I think. What's, what's the national effort look like for, because we were talking earlier about human capital, um, for training after-school educators to deliver a portion of that CS education? Do you guys know? That's not a. That wasn't a loaded question. I really no, don't know the good, answer. That is a good question because I mean we do think about most of the what we call professional development as a thing for formal ed, and there isn't really. I mean because of the structure of the school day and curriculum sometimes being built for that, there. I don't think there is a parallel out of school time PD initiative. Right. It's it's meant to it. I'd be interested yeah. to hear your perspective on, on that, actually. So there, there are initiatives around professional development for after-school programs, but nothing so big as you see with like the exploring computer science training for formal educators. Um, a lot of what we are advocating for at the After School Alliance is for professional development opportunities to be ex extended to out-of-school time educators mm -hmm. um, or thinking about ways that you know pre-service teachers can get their practicum training through service and out-of-school time programs um, because there's a lot of overlap in the staff but you know out-of-school time programs experience the same needs that formal computing programs do as well so that's the resource question it's the curriculum question it's the educator question um, and all of those are needs that are existing in the out-of-school time space mm -hmm. i think the, the benefit, though, with the out-of-school time space or the, the opportunity is that it, it's less high stakes, right? Um, you're, you're not teaching to a test. Um, you're not beholden to 
you know, sort of your, your students' math scores at the same time that you want to introduce them to algorithmic thinking. So, and there's more time to tinker and explore and get those hands-on pedagogies infused, um, which aren't always so easy to do during the school day. So I think, you know, as we talk about sort of well-rounded learning and um, changing sort of the pedagogies by which we engage students in the classroom, we know that the out-of-school time space is where that's already happening naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so and we so all of those things that we, we want to see um, be infused in formal learning are happening in out-of-school time learning. And so the question is, um, how do you link the two? to Michael's point, is how do we ensure that students are getting sort of a continuum of opportunities as they you know, weave their experience between formal and informal spaces? Yeah, I think there's, there's a real, I mean, in a perfect world, rigor would be defined by having a kind of a high, highly qualified educator who can be knowledgeable enough to impart some sort of context for kids to work in, but not necessarily be telling them what to do all the time, right? The project-based model is ideal for computing, and so there's like a great fit for out-of-school time, but we still have the human capital problem that, that Mark just mentioned, right? So how do we get to be have qualified educators in both formal and informal ed, but also take advantage of all the affordances of informal ed, where kids can just do the stuff that is, 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 is great for kids, and, and the more the the what the eighty percent of yeah. of time right uh, it actually does take that much time in some cases to like work out a hard problem or make something um, amazing that you've designed in your mind and you need to like just yeah. need the space mm-hmm. to work on and I think the question is what what do we mean when we say high quality educator so does that mean that that person needs to themselves be a computer scientist and and have all of that knowledge base. Because what we know is really inspiring to kids, especially when they're engaged in computing for the first time, is seeing the adult in the room also have to tinker and reiterate on a problem and fail and figure it out. Um, I think that's part of what I love about the computer science for all movement is that it tries to sort of inspire real research, right? Like, it's called research, not results. That's the first thing someone in a lab ever told me. Um, And it really sticks with me. But you learn how to not get frustrated by failure when you're in a space where it's not seen as failure. It's just part of the process. And so learning with the adult in the room can be a big motivator for students. Um, And I definitely, I've I've uh, subbed in a classroom or done formal, you know, an hour in a formal. You don't want to be the teacher who doesn't know things in front of your mm-hmm. kids. That that can True. be a vicious setting. But again, with the out of school time space being less high stakes and it's more open to that that sort of give and take. So, um, yes. <laughs> right. So right. So definitions of quality and rigor are are important, right? And, like, and maybe flexible. Flexible. Depending on the space, maybe. Yeah. Don't hold me to that. Well, I think giving everybody a learning orientation, right? Something more, I don't know, what would Carol Dweck call it? Incremental? Like where where adults embrace that same, like, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to figure, figure it out. out. We'll do it together. Exactly. We'll learn from each other. We'll go online, you know, and then making that the prevailing culture. Maybe informal ed's a lot closer to that already, and so you have to break down more barriers in the informal ed space. Right. Yeah. Carol Dweck, for those who don't know who she is. Growth mindset, uh, yeah. right? The uh, the uh, progenitor of what we think of as the growth mindset. Yeah. So she's right. she's a um, what is her her 
formal field of study is cognitive psychology. That's right. And um, Carol Dweck is one of those people that I always have a little bit of a shake my head moment when people are talking about growth mindset, just because if I put myself in her shoes, it must be so frustrating because she's been, uh, you know, singing the a gospel about things we care deeply about now in the current, the, where the sort of zeitgeist is currently, uh, but she's been doing them since like the 70s. Right. And um, she's a pretty amazing, so I, I just thought she was worth a, uh, a sidebar. A well, and there's also a, a group, a growing group of people who have good ideas like her and uh, Angela Duckworth or even um, uh, Charlotte Danielson, who's like framework on uh, high quality instruction has been turned into an evaluation tool sort mm -hmm. of against her wishes like people whose ideas have kind of had their moment in the sun and then been appropriated and misused or misapplied in ways that must be right. endlessly frustrating to them I right. think. which which Dweck actually wrote that paper it was like in in uh, defending herself um, I, I think trying in part to sort of um, save herself from the trap of like the the um, Howard Gardner who did all this work on uh, intelligences that was sort of misappropriated in all these kinds of ways and and you so you should check out that paper because it's um, kind of hysterical it's just her sort of saying here's what I was after uh, and what it's good for total uh, tangent we've successfully um, Diverged, but um, but the that's sign okay. of a good conversation. Carol Dweck <laughs> is worth it, um, I think. So, um, well, and I think just yeah. a note on Carol Dweck and and those of of that ilk. It, it's that basis, that foundational understanding of really encouragement, encouraging kids to learn or people to learn. Um, fuels a lot of what we love about some of these computer science curriculum that are designed, um, that are designed for equity. They really draw on those sorts of research bases mm. around um, sort of thinking past failure and um, how to identify curriculum that underrepresented students, students who are not typically seen in those spaces can relate to. Um, so it's not a complete non sequitur, but yeah. I think those fields were, were really invaluable to understanding what good design for equity in a curriculum would mean. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of our conversation, Stephanie, you talked about like how you would have loved to have more computing to support the work you were doing as a biologist, right? And so thinking of it as a toolkit, uh, computing as a toolkit for um, solving hard problems, right? So if all, we're, if all we're trying to do is empower more kids to be um, able to solve hard problems and have have the confidence in themselves that they can power through it. Like I mean, that's that's ultimately what any of this is. It's, it's like you can call it what you want, you know, persistence and grit or an incremental or growth mindset. Um, but the idea is that you, in somewhere inside yourself, have the ability to to get through something, uh, either individually or by you know, uh, you know, calling in your network. Uh, I was going to make a, a uh, anachronistic game show reference by phone a friend, but uh, <laughs> but bring, but like if you go to a really good middle school classroom, let's say, you'll see all these kids working on problems, and the room uh, shifts as kids uh, figure things out, and then other kids gather around that kid, and the knowledge gets disseminated, and then they kind of go back to where they were, into the existing groups they had, and so you see, it's a kind of a a socially leveled
build a learning experience that actually makes everybody kind of work together as opposed to being kind of stuck in their own hermetic environment of their brain. I mean, when you said 80% of learning happens outside of school, I also think the other 20%, like your mind, you're physically in the school, but your mind might not be, right? <laughs> yeah. So engagement is... I have no idea what you mean. No, I do. no that's, that's a secret. But the idea that... that uh, really good learning is engagement and so whatever it is that is actually sparking something and creating focus for you is that's that's when learning is happening and it's not necessarily time or space dependent and so um, the opportunity to engage in things that kids really get deeply into is the goal mm. um, changing direction a tiny bit um, what's so all of the things that you just mentioned that are potential um, uh, added benefits, um, you know, symptoms that kind of uh, ride with CS Ed as an issue. Um, we've been interested in for a long time the grit and persistence, the the fear of failure, all of all of those uh, self efficacy, self confidence. Um, you know, this in many ways the the. Uh, rise of positive youth development as its own movement was a response to our need for these things. And, and we're still working on these problems. So um, why do you guys think we haven't made more progress? Move the needle? We haven't. I, I, yes. <laughs> the, I was trying to keep from moving, moving the needle. Um, but, but yeah, why haven't we moved the needle? You know, I think Firstly, part of that question to me still kind of connects to workforce. So we talk about a lot of, we, we measure the needle, if you will, in terms of workforce often. And when we talk about leaky pipelines and STEM fields and things like that, um, which are all metaphors that right. people have lots of problems with for various reasons. Um, but in line with sort of that leaky pipeline research, um, again, this is in biological fields, mm. but um, Dr. Kenny Gibbs and a lot of folks have shown that, you know, we misunderstand where the pipeline is leaky, if you will. So you can get as many um, black and brown kids or women interested in computer science or biology or what have you, and they can complete their degrees, um, their undergraduate degrees in those fields and still not persist within them as careers. Right. And so a lot of what we're not talking about, and don't get me wrong, we still need to address these equity issues and the access issues in K-12 space, but we need to be realistic about what happens to those kids once we shove them into these pipelines, if you will, um, when they get to their destination. And if we're having retention problems at the career space, we need to start thinking about what about these environments that these students who were engaged through K-20 um, but are disengaging in the career world, what, what is the cause of that? And that isn't a lack of ability, that isn't a lack of desire, right? There's something else happening. And so I think what's missing in a lot of these conversations and a lot of this attempt to address representation in these fields is a focus on the actual space that people are being productive in these fields and what sort of environments we're expecting students and adults to be productive in. And until we start addressing the inequities or the toxicities in some of these work environments, we're going to continue to see what ultimately looks like a leaky pipeline, if you will. Mm. Um, but that's not because they didn't have the ability or 
or capacity to do the work. Mm. So, so I think that I have processed everything you just <laughs> said, but but there's a lot there. So let me let me say something back, and and does this make sense? So, despite organizations like mine and best efforts nationally, schools, um, you know, helping young, all young people. Um, have the chance to embrace an identity um, for using the tools of, of computation, of science, of engineering um, toward the, the relevant problems of our time. Um, we can make our best efforts, but if they then get to a place in that trajectory where it's a totally unappealing uh, Fill in the blank context, workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how, how, however, those things pan out. What you're saying is, it it kind of doesn't matter how much work we've put into the earlier part of that trajectory. So, so is your idea that we need to focus more on um, the issues as they exist in the workplace now? Yes, <laughs> that is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, yeah, we could talk about building grit within students. The, most of the student populations that we're talking about being underrepresented, their life is full of grit. That mm-hmm. That is how they get through every day. So this idea that students just need to have more persistence or more grit in order to be successful in Silicon Valley or whatever tech sphere you're interested in seems to me to be missing a big part of the component, which is the environment in which they're expected to be productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think that we have an education system that's highly misaligned to um, probably what, what students need on some level, but also just what we, we, we hope for students to be able to do as a result of having been through school, right? Like you you, you read any sort of um, business magazine, like top 10 qualities of uh, you know a successful worker kind of article, and they include qualities that are you know you know maligned as soft skills or thing you know things that are are not even measured in school right so you know if what's get what's measured is what gets done then you're going to focus on math scores and literacy and stuff which are very important on some level but they're not the totality of the person that we want to produce and Mm so we're not creating those opportunities as much as we might in school we um we also have, um, we're trying to build capacity feverishly in K-12 to teach computing, but then kids get to college and then um, the the learning that they might do in computing, either there's like a, a massive 101 course for lots of students who are non-majors, which is a great thing, but then computer science departments and universities are, are much too small to accommodate the demand. And this is at Stanford and this is just like every other uh college down the line in terms of size and uh, public awareness. So there's like a, a real problem in terms of opportunities at, the, at higher education for students to, per, to continue. Um, and so therefore you have to weed out those those students who are not serious about it through the usual means of like crushing their spirit in the first uh, intro, you know, the course that they, the first course they take mm. after the intro. Which, if, if I can interrupt, which is ironic because if they pivot to a um, a subject in health careers, for example, it's not going to be counted when we look at when we measure the needle uh, for where 
our impact on interesting computation is. However, it's really where most of this, the CS education argument lives in that we actually want that student to go and do yes. that. We just want them to do it with, with a CS mindset and CS skills and a CS interest, right? So, um, so that's an observation, not a question. Yeah. But my question is, um, how influential is higher ed and the, um, the sort of academy um, of CS in how we define the movement and its outputs? I think it's driven it a lot to this point that a lot of the CS curriculum for K-12 came out of universities. The AP course language is dictated by what the universities want as their first language, you know, so Java is, is still king uh, at the university level. Um, but we know from years of experience of teaching kids in K-12 that there are lots of other ways, better pedagogical ways to bring them into the field and get them excited and, and, and be able to do things. So there are ways in which the university has to this point dictated uh, the scope of K-12 computing. But now there's all kinds of new things happening that are taking a much different approach, broadening participation efforts funded by NSF, and others have created all these new pathways, which is, which is really good. Um, but I think to your other point, though, that we are we should be open to a wide diversity of ways, and we should hope for that. We should hope that our future legislators in Congress and our lawyers and our doctors and uh, our artists and everyone else, all are frankly our teacher workforce, have a grounding in computational understanding that helps them make, uh, helps them do their work, helps them be literate citizens. I mean, the the, the iPhone encryption issue around um, the San Bernardino shooting a couple of years ago was a great example where people just had no idea what encryption actually meant or was, mm. but were saying, well, isn't there a way, you know, in the back door of that phone? You know, there, there's, th those are things, that's a, a new, a newly complex area of thought that it just most of our citizenry is not prepared for. So mm. how do we, how do we think about that, that, that this is, the reason we're doing CS for All is both what you're saying, that there's like a, a wide funnel that we need to fill of all kids then deciding that, you know, maybe computing is for them, but maybe it's just something that they need in whatever path they choose yeah and that's why we go big and then from a policy perspective I want to know I, I really want to think about how we measure that in a meaningful way because I think even when we we talk with groups I mean the National Science Foundation uh, has been so influential in this space but sometimes I feel like um, also have frustrations in that they have to invest in these sort of STEM cognate um, pathways. At the same time, there was a paper a few years ago about redefining the STEM workforce um, and helping to figure out how we uh, don't shoot ourselves in the foot in the sense that we're counting out lots of professions where we need computational thinking, um, but we're not measuring those because uh, that's where, where students are sort of, that's the leaky pipeline, right? So there's, there's this sort of like perception of a deficit. Um, and 
there are groups out there that I know the NSF is is um, is funding to help uh, think about how we how we broaden participation and how we uh, define some of these areas. Uh, but I wonder a lot whether we need to come back to how we define uh, whether it's CS education or STEM uh, more broadly in the context of the real world and not the higher ed academy. Um, Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a, a big gap there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that this is like a, a policy solution, but I yeah. you thought these same things earlier in our conversation when we're talking about the workforce, right? Um, and I think when we talk about the computer science workforce, we tend to have this vision where these are pretty senior level jobs. We talk about them being high wage jobs. Um, but if you actually look at you know, Facebook or Microsoft's EEO1 report and you like look at the stratification of these jobs, most of the computational jobs are not C-suite level positions. Um, they're mid-level, they're good paying mid-level jobs. Those good paying mid-level jobs will change. Can you just say what C-suite is? Um, the, corporate suite, the CEOs of the companies. Um, But we're talking about web designers. We're talking about maintenance crews. We're talking about folks who are getting good paying middle level jobs. And those jobs are going to change a lot as technology changes a lot. So putting all of this emphasis on getting folks out of a factory and into a mid-level tech job that's almost the new factory, right? Like, mm-hmm. so what are we really, per- what sort of upward mobility are we assuming goes with some of these encouragements? Um, and what is the reality of longevity um, for some of these mid-level jobs that we're really pushing kids to go into? And we see this a lot, especially in two-year for-profit space, um, all of these places where kids are encouraged to spend money to get a certificate, to get a job specifically in a certain language at a specific company. Mm-hmm. Um, how long is that going to last? And so I think, you know, the way we may be underrepresenting computer science students in degree programs, we can also be over underrepresenting the job perspectives in this field as well, mm. um, and thinking about what the long-term benefit to these communities are that we're pushing into these into these fields. Yeah, I like to remind myself of that anecdote I told at the beginning of when I asked people to raise their hands, the software engineers in a given tech company, like how many of you learn computing at school, That and many of them are this like autodidact culture of like I figured it out on my own because I liked it or because I had to. Um, and similarly, I, th- I try to think of the personal empowerment side of computing as a goal, um, where the kids are given avenues to be creative, to work together on projects, to solve hard problems, whether those problems are computing or larger than that, mm-hmm. right? Like solving a, uh, a, a data problem or using data to solve a problem in my neighborhood or solving a problem if I want to render some really cool graphic on the screen in a way that I can't yet. Like those, there's a lot of ways to think about problems. And then, and then that we do less on over-specifying, you know, like the boot camps do for specific languages for short-term job opportunities, but think more broadly about what are the what makes a person and what do they need to know and how do we get them ready for a generalized set of skills that we for jobs that we frankly just don't know exactly what are those transferable skill sets yeah so before we were talking about um 
ecosystems. And I spent some time in preparation for this conversation on the CS for All Consortium website. And it strikes me that if it's not already part of the plan, that um, because you you guys sort of got to a place where we're really describing part of this uh, another reform issue that exists outside of CS education. But um, I personally, and probably uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You can say whether or not you agree. Um, I see CS education as an opportunity to focus in on and talk more about, which is the um, unnecessary. Uh, siloing we've done of informal education and formal education. And and it seems like CS for All as a consortia is an opportunity for you two who hold roles in these two silos, really important influential roles, have an opportunity through the consortium um, to come together. And so one question is, is CS education a moment for us um, to start that process, to make um, whether, however, we want to frame that, whether it's about uh, expanded learning or or um, school and after school, or or however we want to to go about that, is the consortium a place for us um, for you two to see attacking this issue not in your different silos, but but as uh, collaboration and as a way for us to achieve other reforms that um, are necessary for us to achieve great CS education for all. I think when we stood up the consortium a year and a half ago, we were responding to a need to have a a hub um, for the community, that there was this growing community with growing awareness of each other, right? So for so many years, organizations um, locally based would do what they do and do it well, um, but not necessarily have to think about others um, and competed for staff and dollars and kids and that kind of thing. And so there was, um, so a lot of stuff just kind of happened in isolation. And similarly, teachers and schools taught CS, but there was never, there wasn't a lot of attention to uh, pathways across K-12 or where kids went after graduating or where they went from experience to experience out of the school building. Mm. Um, And so... We, I think we do take advantage of this galvanizing moment where everybody's thinking about this on some level. Maybe I'm just projecting that I think about it all the time, <laughs> therefore everybody else does. Right. But, that, but that there is a tension across all those sectors, government, industry, philanthropy, higher ed, K-12, nonprofit, everybody, parents. Um, so we are, 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 we have to ride that wave now because we have have it. But that we're also the consortium's kind of ethos is that we'll be much stronger if we do it together and are connected and aware of each other. We can learn together. We can work together. Um, not unlike the way the Hive uh, learning networks here in the city and in Chicago and other places uh, learned that not only could they be in the same room, but they could actually do more and better things if they collaborated. Mm. So that was a pretty powerful notion for us and one that. We're we're still trying to figure out how to activate across the whole nation of people interested in CS. Um, I, I hesitate to ascribe too much to CS. Like it's everybody sees this opportunity to like fix things with the CS, CS education. If only we do mm. this right, finally. Um, but it is unique that we're uh, that we're bringing a new uh, domain to schools and af- out of school organizations that wasn't previously. Uh, Formalized or thought out quite as much as it is now. We know a lot more than we did, um, and and we can do more. Um, 
but I also want to avoid it becoming like the president's uh, physical fitness challenge, where if you do like <laughs> enough jumping jacks, you know, you get the certificate. I no, did we very well. On the <laughs> I have no challenge. doubt. Uh, and uh, um, but I, but what we do think of maybe more like physical fitness and wellness as like something that all people just need to have throughout everything and and then continue in their life. So, you know, there's been a lot of sort of early wins and celebrations and now we need to do the hard work of making sure it's something that's kind of pervasive and done well Mm. and really embraced in a bigger way. And so that to me seems like an opportunity where we can all come together. Your your head nodding. Well, I agree. <laughs> I, def- I definitely agree. And, you know, the After School Alliance is a member of the CS for All Consortia. And we've definitely seen over the last year, um, you know, again, is this the chicken or the egg? Are we focusing on it because it's the trendy thing to do? Or is that being spurred by the grassroots desire? Um, and it's both, right? So you see Girls Who Code clubs popping up everywhere and in places where we in those sort of low populous rural areas and things like that. So it's a disservice to not be thinking about um, these communities, these organizations that are already reaching students. Mm -hmm. And so if that's gonna be happening, whether we um, as a national sort of thought partner are are ensuring high quality or fighting to make sure that they have the resources that they need to bring the students the holistic services that are required, then, then we're doing a disservice. So I think that the time is now, and um, you know we can't let we can't let the movement pass. But we are also aware that computer science is not the only the only topic that is worthy of conversation. Um, I think in my role, I often have to remember that STEM in general is not the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, if you talk to folks who care about literacy, then they are, you know, people have STEM fatigue. People have CS fatigue right now. Um, and so it's not a silver bullet to fix all of the woes of our society, but it is a big lever. And if we're thinking about equity and access, and again, back to the workforce, then we can't not address these issues. Um, so I do think that there is a big opportunity. And I think with the national footprint that now having the CS for All Consortia that can sort of weave all these thought partners and stakeholders together and sort of be a, a conduit for thought and innovation is very powerful. So mm. I will be really excited to see um, what happens over the next five years mm-hmm. um, and really thinking about how this collect- collective impact approaches is realized and I think that takes folks like Michael and I and our organizations um, thinking of ways to partner and expand and and pool our resources so that no one's recreating the wheel or developing um, relationships that already exist you know I'm I think I don't know about you but my experience has been that you have one meeting with a group of people four times a week Mm. and it's all a different meeting right so how can we make sure to respect the capacity of organizations and the reality of human capital um, while still seeing this reach scale. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I am with you. Uh, you you said you both kind of um, said or implied the word uh, integrated or integrative. Um, And one of the big topics in CS education right now, and and we don't have to spend lots of time on it because it could be an episode in and of itself, but is the issue of um, whether it's a 
it belongs in schools as a domain, the way you described. And domain, for those who don't know that uh, term, is a fancy word for educators and and psychologists and and folks to sort of call a subject area. Um, So whether it it should be existent as um, its own domain, uh, you know, classes in CS, or uh, it should be integrated across the curriculum, and we should be seeing CS in social studies and science and, and other environments. Um, I wonder if you two have um, things you want to say about that issue. Of course. Uh, well, I think it's you know, com- computing is can be interesting on its own, and there's some fundamentals that everybody needs. But then it becomes exciting when you're applying it, right? It's like mathematics and statistics. That there's statistics as a discipline is not that exciting, except for a certain specific kind of person that's really jazzed by statistics. Um, like my father was a had a PhD in statistics and uh, loved statistics, and I never asked him for help with my math homework because it would be this like odyssey into the depths of. De- deriving the things I was trying to just get a basic answer for. but uh, but app applied statistics are incredibly powerful, both as a literacy for understanding big numbers um, and how um, phenomena emanate across populations. Um, you know, it's, it's a central tool, and being able to do some of your own s- generation of that stuff is is part of probably a, a fundamental skill that we don't teach enough kids. Right? Um, there's like the sort of like a cognitive home ec, like you need to be able to just think about those things. And mm. so I think that there's a way. You know, I, I earlier I referenced like the wide funnel that you need to create opportunities for every kid to understand and have a have a firsthand experience and feel good about it um, insofar as that oh that was interesting that was that was relevant to me I did something interesting that I can show and talk about and then some of those kids will go on uh, in a whole range of pathways but unless you ensure that every kid has that it doesn't really matter where it happens it could be an art class uh, a lot of the actually educators I worked with in the city uh, who were CS educators came to it through the arts which gave them a unique kind of of creative approach to it, uh, one that was maybe a little bit more aesthetic, which is kind of a nice way to mm. bring to come to computing. Um, there's the people from the game side, the people from, you know, the, then there's like the, I don't know, the, the AI people who wanted to make a, 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 a psychotherapist who responded to your questions with some validity, right? So there's like all mm. ways in, you just have to find, you create enough meaningful learning experiences that everybody can find something there to get that fundamental literacy and then go on to whatever else they're going to do with their life. So you're saying both. Both. <laughs> because some of them, thank you. Yeah, and some kids, some kids were going to be like, yes, computing. Right, and they're going to go on, and they're going to take the AP courses. They're going to take AP Chemistry and AP Biology, maybe too, or maybe they'll pick one. Like, but the fact that you learn a lot about volcanoes in school, but not a lot about computer science, is something we have to rectify. Yeah. Um, so, so right. So we want to have that pipeline of computer scientists and software engineers, but the only way we get a diverse sampling of those folks is by having the wide funnel. Yeah. Um, and then, then it's in the water for everybody. Yeah. I think while I was at NSF, that was one of the debates that fascinated me the most in dealing with the primary investigators. And you know, I find it very tough to come down like in a black or white setting, a yes or a no. And this is one of those examples. And I think it's definitely both. Um, you have a lot of academic debate about that, and you have 
you know, you have the, the, the CS Plex X crew of the world, and then you have the folks that really fundamentally believe that the rigors of computer science can only be addressed in a computer science course explicitly. And I don't, I think they're both right, you know? Um, and we, I think about this a lot in terms of biological sciences, and there was a movement called the Vision and Change of Biology that brought together a tremendous number of university stakeholders to think about how they were going to coordinate what biology students were learning in un on undergrad campuses across the nation mm. and figuring out ways to sort of start with that broad funnel and then filter down. So mm. not everybody becomes an immunologist like me, but we all learned about the cell cycle, right? And like figuring out sort of where those, um, what those concept buckets are and where the space for integration is and then where the need for really drilling down in a refined way mm. on some of the nitty gritty is, is required. And as someone who's not a trained computer scientist, I think some of those um, real curricular conversations, especially in like after the CS 101s, right, um, become more nuanced. And so, you, d you know, at some point you have to rely on, on the experts. Um, but I think if we look at other STEM related disciplines, we see that, you know, you, you start broad and you narrow down. Um, and when it comes in terms to sort of that K-12 space and getting kids engaged, um, that's part of what the stereotype that turns kids off from computer science is that it's coding for the sake of coding. And I certainly didn't ever want to personally just sit in a room and write code just for the sake of writing code. But if you'd given me a problem to solve using that as a tool that resonated with me, that was culturally responsive, that I chose myself, mm. um, then I would have been more inspired to learn that tool. And so um, there's a lot of research that shows that that's the case. Um, and so, again, both. <laughs> you guys are very diplomatic. <laughs> Um, no, I, I can, I can, I can, um, I can see that. I'd love you to take a controversial opposing, two opposing uh, positions, but. <laughs> I mean, if I had to pick one, but I, I would say sense. CS plus X. If plus I had to X. Pick. Yeah, and, the, and the integration. Got it. So, and when you say CS plus X, you mean um, have computer science as its own domain? No, like a biology track that was heavily computational. Got it. Good. Or a business um, track, yeah. right? Not necessarily right. a STEM proper. Right, right. Um, I have one last question. Um, unless you guys have things we haven't covered that, that we still want to talk about. But um, when I look at some of the data about how we're doing, um, when we do talk about you know the needle, um, we're making pretty sad progress uh, when we look particularly um, uh, from my organization's perspective we're most interested in um, the needle that we're moving as it relates not just to young people interested in pathways that include um, STEM and computation, um, but specifically how we're doing as it relates to equity and diversity of those uh, of those tracks. And we're making uh, sad, but some progress in when we talk about um, especially young learners of color, the one area that in 30 years we're actually doing worse is young women. Um, 
my question is, do you guys have thoughts about why that is and how with the movement of CS education now and um, whether there are things we can do to make uh, young women a part of the urgency of, um, of who CS is in five and 10 and 20 years? So, I mean, I'll, I'll start off. I, I actually think that a lot of the focus on equity does focus on gender, and what we're actually missing is that intersectional lens. So if you can talk about the like tiny, um, let's just start, so first when we talk about women, right, that's comparing it to sort of the inaugural cohort of computer scientists that were 80% women, right? Like, so what we saw was a huge precipitous decline in the number of women engaged in computer science once that tech bubble started to come up. Mm -hmm. so, so we're already sort of starting from a place that was, um, I don't know, an outlier in terms of where we're starting about women's participation in computer science. Right. Um, but then if you look at sort of the small increases in women getting, say, PhDs in computer science, but then you disaggregate by both gender and race, you can see that the women who are completing PhDs in computer science, first and foremost, are disproportionately um, visiting scholars, so not American students. Mm. And then after that, they're white women. And then after that, they're you know much, 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 much lower than that. Then you start getting into Hispanic women and black women and um, basically no American Indians or Pacific mm. Islanders mm. being represented. So I think part of this conversation around data and equity and representation requires that we do apply an intersectional lens. Um, I think that in this country, historically, movements focused on feminism have been focused on the, the lived experiences of white women. Mm. And so when we have these conversations, it's important to me, at least, that we do start trying to have an intersectional lens and being clear about the communities that we're talking about. Um, it's not always easy and there are like the laws of numbers so you can't always you can't always disaggregate your data when there's only one of somebody in mm. your cohort um, but you know I can go through by school and see how many PhDs graduate in a certain race gender um, demographic and mm -hmm. I might actually know that person mm -hmm. because there are so few in, in some of these fields especially oh, in computer word. science um, so I don't think I answered your question but more your question brought up to me this point that I think it's really important that when we're talking about gender equity especially that we do think beyond just gender yeah, yeah fair enough. Michael has your um, uh, you are you have two daughters yes does your being the dad of two daughters um, change how you view the sort of mission of the work with that in mind? Well, if you take taking a sample of two, even <clears throat> you have, I, I see in my own kids um, the different ways they approach <clears throat> the world and the way they approach their academics and the things they're interested in. And um, both of them are interested in technology. Um, one is very, the older one is really creative and likes to make things. And she's very much right now into digital art. So mm. constantly creating uh, drawings, basically, in digital, origin, born digital kind of format. And I could see how that might lead into 
um, <clears throat> other pathways, things where you need to use software that automates stuff and create, you know, if she gets into, anim if the illustration turns into animation, that's a whole amazing pathway. Mm. Um, and then the younger one is more into kind of communication, right, when she's little. Um, so, right, the fact that she can, like, be connected to the world outside is exciting news. So mm. they already they have interests that are in you know enabled and enhanced by technology and so when they get to a place where they can actually start making and doing things that they have some agency over I can see that being um, good. Um if it's okay though I, I would like to return to the question that Stephanie was just Please. talking about. Yeah. Um, where I, I it's have kind like of a, kind of the same question yeah, but different. A hopeful a hope sort of a hopeful based on New York City's experience for the last several years, mm -hmm. there's a kind of a hopeful and then a kind of a, a fear a, a, a way of thinking about it. But the hopeful one is that having now looked at the tens of thousands of kids whose schools reported them as having learned computer science last year, um, in their schools, uh, we see that the demographics of those kids roughly mirrors the demographics of the school system, that their gender, um, zip code, um, and ethnicity are, are pretty close to how the New York City school system is distributed, which gives me a very high level of confidence that, that we're reaching mm. schools and kids. It does not mean that we know the quality and the nature of what they're learning. The, the amount of data we have out of the systems here is not yet that level of refinement, and we also have to look with a little suspicion on just how how stuff is getting reported. Like, mm. it's, people don't necessarily know what they're being asked, right? Like, what is computer science, right? You know? Um, but, uh, and on top of that, to the, the leaky pipeline is still a, the, the issue, too. Even taking into account the fact that we hope that the pipeline actually just differentiates and has lots of tiny little pipelines, like the capillaries of, mm. of computing, right, from the artery out. Um, but um, I worry, you know, we know from NC Witt's work, for example, the National Center for Women in IT, that uh, counselors are, are, you know, have a really important voice in, and, and teachers, frankly, and this, this New York City schools are good at this, at thinking about teachers as the sort of distributed network of, of counselors, that the language they use and the guidance that they give kids matters a lot. And so by, by suggesting, based on stereotypes, that kids are or are not meant for this mm. stuff, there's a lot of, basically there's a lot of opportunities for danger, right? So even if we do our best and give, give exposure to all these kids, we're still we're still we still have to make sure that we fix a lot of different places in the system that come in, all that come into contact with these kids and can either give them that motivating experience and encouragement we want them to have or maybe we'll be the one thing that discourages them and then and puts them off course so yeah. so there there's so it's a hopeful moment but it's there's also a lot of risk still well, and that's definitely a testament to the effort of CS for all that you see that representation of the city in the students who are taking these classes in New York City, as we know that that's not the case in a lot of school systems. And, you know, sort of uh, stuck in this shallow end by Jane, Margala, Jane Margolis is one of the first things that I was looking at that really showed unequivocally, <laughs> unequivocally like, the disparities between a school and the kids who might be in a computer science class. Mm. And that research is really what spurred them to develop the Exploring Computer Science curriculum, which focused on equity, which was designed to get those students who were at the school but not in the computer science class in the computer science class. And we see that curriculum being used across the nation with lots of success in terms of getting all of this, all of our students interested in being in the class. Mm. Um, 
and this is sort of a non sequitur, but I just wanted to make a point to your question about the role of higher ed in um, yeah. sort of bringing CS for all. And I think that they have a very, very important role, especially as we're thinking about the AP courses. And um, so I'm thinking about the new AP Computer Science Principles course, which is designed for equity. And it is also Berkeley's um, intro course for CS for non-majors. But there's a lot of debate around, should it be an AP class or not? And would universities accept it as an AP course? And so universities have a big role in sort of approving um, curriculum at the K-12 level that is seen as college prep. And so I think at the at your CS for All Summit in, Wash, in St. Louis in October, we learned that Wash uh, U St. Louis is going to accept the APCSP course as an AP credit. So um, that goes a long way, right, into incentivizing participation and making it something sort of wor worth your time, if you mm -hmm. will, quote unquote. Um, so I think having and classes that are designed for equity that encourage all sorts of students to be involved, that also give students um, credit for their participation in that course will hopefully plug some of those holes in the pipeline. Yeah. We, don't, we don't like Wouldn't that metaphor, nice. but yeah. Unfortunately, um, with that too, I think the universities aren't necessarily in incentivized sure, no, to be adding, I, I think the trend line for uh, universities accepting AP credit is on the downward. Mm -hmm. um, but I love what you said, and I wish if this could be the encouragement for universities to come back to a place where AP credit really translates. Um, but I get that they're also... Well, at Stanford, it didn't mean credit, but it meant skipping a class, right? Mm -hmm. So even things like that. That's I'm not meaningful. suggesting that everyone needs to offer you units, mm -hmm. um, but at a university that does offer course progression mm -hmm. for previous experience, um, I think that that also goes a long way. Units would be cool, too. I mean, units are great. <laughs> and smart, you know, smart principals and superintendents, I've talked to use AP as a tool to raise all boats, that they find that having all of their faculty, even if they're not teaching an AP course, understand that they're trying to get all students ready to and through AP courses means that everybody can rally around this idea that they're, all the students in the building might be capable of taking AP courses if they just make it happen. Mm. And so that that's another really good reason to offer even if you're not an AP believer, that you don't believe that it's an actual substitute for a college class or that you think the college board isn't isn't an organization that you want to support, you know, lots of there's a lot of feelings about AP, but I think that one it's a, it's it's an incentive for kids, it's an incentive for schools to do better. Mm. I don't want to take more of your time, but um I am so thankful uh, for you, the travel. I know you had many things to do today, and this was only one of them, but uh, I so appreciate my favorite thing today. your time. <laughs> oh, I am, I am so grateful. And Michael, I know you're a slightly busy guy. Um, so uh, thank you for being here. This has been an awesome kickoff to a series of conversations we're going to be having about um, CS and education on No Such Thing. And I think this was a pretty awesome way to kick things off. Um, are there things that we want to point people to um, for either of your organizations? Or you can also, if you have your own um, uh, channels, social media that you want to plug, that's okay too? 
Yeah, um, nothing personal, but I do think uh, if you are looking for resources to bring computer science opportunities to your out-of-school time program, whether that's before school, after Great. school, summer learning, um, you should check out the After School Alliance. We have a computer science resource guide that summarizes a lot of the um, high-quality and most popular sort of unplugged and uh, le different levels of technology requirements, but it would be a good place to get some inspiration and to sort of start understanding what resources are out there. Um, great. It's a great place to start. Great. And um, I will link to that in the show notes as well. Um, and I will also link to your bio for um, folks who are interested to learn more about you. I hope um, they will check it out because there were lots of questions about your uh, your history and, and, um, and work that I didn't get to ask about. But um, uh, so I will do that. Uh, Michael, things for either um, CS for All or CSNYC? Um, well, New York City is doing all kinds of cool stuff um, that people should know about, um, and I uh, am happy to talk about that anytime. Uh, but um, the national stuff, you can follow CS for All on Twitter uh, and uh, Facebook, I believe, uh, where CS for All Consortium. That's our handle there, but we—it's um, catchy. It's yeah, it rolls off the tongue. Um, but but I think we use those social media channels as a way to promote the work that others are doing. That that it's about you know lifting up everybody and the good work they do, so that, that more people can be aware of it and connect with those people. So Great. that's our focus. And people can go there if they're interested in um, joining. They can join. Thank you. CSforall.org um, has an. Um, the contact page is an easy way to join. We have more than 400 members now across all different kinds of categories, including content providers and um, funders, researchers, um, school districts, local education agencies. So really, anybody who's involved in furthering the movement is welcome. It's free to join. It doesn't take very much time to join. Um, and we basically uh, take everybody. Um, but being a member uh, gives you access to our communications. Um, beyond social media as well as community calls and office hours and things that we do as a service mm. to the CS for all growing community. Terrific. Thank you both again. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, this Mark. was super fun. For more info about how you can sponsor No Such Thing, hit me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced in partnership with City University of New York's Master's Program in Youth Studies at SPS. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us on the web at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and young man who I beat in a slam dunk contest in 2004. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthing.wordpress.com.